So, let's start with Psalm 111 this morning. Psalm 111. Who'd like to read it out? It's not too long. It's only ten verses. Gives me a chance to drink some coffee. Go for it. Go for it, Armin. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's given food to those who fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant, and, his de- and has declared to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent the redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Amen. I I chose a psalm that uh, this morning that we're going to look at several of David's psalms about the the promise of God that we read about in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Sometimes it's called the Davidic Covenant. It's one of the major covenants in the Bible. It, it, uh, what we're seeing is we're seeing a, a revelation through the life of David about Messiah and about God's redemptive plan and how God is fulfilling His promise. His promise to Adam, His promise to Noah, his promise to Abraham, his promises to, to Jacob's descendants through Moses. And what we're seeing is we're seeing a progressive revelation of how God is fulfilling that promise. And that's what, it, what is central to this psalm is that God will remember his covenant forever. It's repeated twice. And so we want to understand what the covenant of God is. And I know Sean spent a lot of time teaching on the covenant we're about ready to come into one of the, the major uh, covenants in the Bible. So that's why I wanted to start with that this morning. We're in uh, 2 Samuel. <coughs> Excuse me. And we, uh, we finished a pretty thorough discussion of chapter 4 in the beginning of chapter 5. And I left you with a cliffhanger last week, which is... Uh, David's family is growing, and that's pretty much where we'll pick up this morning. Who can who can tell me what um, what the short story is up to this point in time? I mean, what what's going on in the history of Israel and in the life of David? We were here, so we missed it. We should pick on you guys because yeah, we're here, right? <laughs> He's uniting Israel and Judah. He's uniting Israel and Judah. So Saul is, uh, his 
reign as king has ended, and David, who was anointed king, and then went through a period where God chose him uh, and selected him to be his uh, viceroy, his agent of administration through kingship. Uh, God is king, but he delegates uh, authority to a human king. And David was chosen to do that, but he wasn't on the throne. So he first came to uh, throne power over Judah, the area of Judah. So I'm going to pop into the map here. And so the area of Judah is in this part of Israel right here. And it's a very large territory. It goes all the way over here, includes Ziklag. Uh, kind of along the Shelah, down to the border with uh, the southern area. They call this the Negev. And then it comes all the way uh, along the Dead Sea here and cuts up near Bethlehem. And I've, I'm going to expand this so you'll actually see the, the names of the cities here in a minute. And then comes back up right to the border with Jerusalem. And I did figure out how to... Uh, increase the size of the, the names of the city. So hopefully, even though it's very busy right here, it's, you're actually going to be able to see the city names. So he was first um, crowned king or anointed king by the people in Hebron, which is kind of the capital of Judah. So if this is the territory of Judah here, this was the capital of Judah, and that was an area that was uh, settled by... Uh, Caleb, back when the land was divided up, and he took this hill country, which was very hard to hold. And that's where David became king. We read about some of the political intrigue that happened, and the, the northern uh, families were pretty much united uh, behind Saul. And when Saul died, they followed his uh, chief general, Abner, and so Abner got ticked off at his puppet king that he set up after Saul died. So he came and made a, a covenant with David at Hebron. And in that covenant, it was that the northern tribes would support David. So David moved from Hebron to Jerusalem. I'm going to expand this a little bit more. So that we can kind of see, hopefully, hopefully those city names and stuff are a little bit easier to read or locations are a little bit easier to read uh, so David came north uh, from Hebron down here up along this ridge route and he came to the, uh, the city of Jebus which was right here and he took that country and that's what we're going to read about this morning but he was actually crowned king while he was in Hebron. We read that the first part of chapter 5. And all, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. <clears throat> so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. And we read then some parenthetical information uh, about David. So it says, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. So this is a summary statement 
about all of David's reign. So he reigned 40 years. Saul had reigned 40 years. <clears throat> 40 years is a significant time for a king to reign. And uh, we're going to see that that number pops up repeatedly for some of the good kings. It says, At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. So I'm in chapter 5, verse 5. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So now we're going to find out the story of David. If he is king over all Israel... When he was crowned king in Hebron, that was the, the capital of Judah. So it didn't really represent all of the uh, tribes of Israel. So David recognized that he needed to move that seat of his rule to a more central location. What would be the most central location, uh, and we've read about it a lot, in Israel for him to rule from? So I'm going to back up a little bit here. Originally, when they came into the territory, the, they came up from uh, Gilgal here in the Jordan Valley. This is the Jordan River Valley, sometimes called the Rift Valley. And they marched uphill, and they took this country right here, and then they spread out north and south. When they spread out to the north, they put the tabernacle, which is where God lived with men, in a tent in Shiloh. So Shiloh is in Ephraim. So that was one of the strong tribes of Israel, and that was the, the heart of the northern kingdom. So when they came into the country, they basically set up the, the seat of administration for God's kingship in Shiloh, in Ephraim. Who knows what tribe Joshua was from? Anybody? Who are, who are the two people when uh, the, the story of the, the Jewish people, they came out of uh, Egypt and they were a million plus strong, maybe a couple of million, and they went through the Red Sea and they came to Mount Sinai and God gave them uh, the law. So the covenant was struck there at Mount Sinai, they went from there and God said, okay, now go into the land that I promised you. Pardon? So, Joshua's from Benjamin. You're answering the question? Yeah. Okay. Are you sure on that? <laughs> so, what happened was, I'll let, you, I'll let you look it up. I mean, it gives you the tribes of Joshua. It gives you the tribes of Caleb. Uh, so they, they ended up coming to an area down here. Um, it's like all of a sudden my brain goes blank. It's not on here. It was uh, essentially a staging area right on the edge of the southern area. And they sent out spies from there. And the spies went into the land. And where did the spies go? They went into Judah. They went into the Gaza Plain here. They probably didn't push as far north as the area that we know of as Ephraim, but they came back with a lot of goods. They came back with, um, you know, huge uh, clusters of grapes and raisins and honey and produce from the land and stuff like that. And they said, it is indeed a fruitful land, right? God has sent us to a place that's 
really good. The cities are already built, but there's one problem. There's giants in the land. And that's because these people down in the southern hill country here were bigger in stature and might than most of the people that they would come across. These guys were mountain men. And uh, they were descendants of the... Uh, Greg, who were they descendants of? The Nephilim. Correct. So... We understand if you go back in Genesis and you read about the histories of some of these people, these were like the mighty men of renown. And so they, they get in there and they say, there's giants in the land. You know, whether they're really giants like Goliath is debatable, but they were very much um, stronger in their physical impression than the Israelites were. So the Jewish people, the Hebrews, tended to be a little bit smaller, shorter, uh, you know, good for carrying bricks up, you know, and making the stuff in Egypt, but not necessarily good for inhabiting mountain country. Yes? I just have a question because you said they came from the Nephilim. Yes. Now, I thought they were wiped out for a class. There is uh, descendants of Anak, actually, which are the men of renown. So if you look at that, and you're referring to Genesis chapter chapter 9 yeah and it, it talks about these men of renown and this is I mean this is a whole study in itself or chapter 6 yeah corruption of mankind and it talks about the men of renown in chapter 6 and it it talks about these men that were men of renown and that's that's a word that's used so sometimes people would take this as that there was uh, maybe some uh, angels, fallen angels that came and intermarried with humanity and that's one train of thought about who these people were I think it's more uh, along the lines of exactly what it says these were men of renown, these were big men they were powerful men they were um, the leaders of the world at that point in time and what happened is is that uh, Noah and his line went into the ark and when they came out, there was a genealogy that's given. And in that genealogy, uh, you can trace it back to the uh, sons of Anak, I think is his name. Someone in Noah's line. Yeah, I mean, everybody that's here was somewhere in Noah's line. Because I thought you were referring to Nephilim before Noah was wiped out. Right, but Noah had a heritage too. So he came from his bloodline. So everybody goes back to Adam, ultimately. But there were different branches and stuff. So of these men of renown, you have uh, certain men that uh, they, I mean, we see the diversity in the world today. So that diversity was already forming them, and it was represented in Adam's family. And you see that in the genealogies that come out in, in Genesis chapter, oh, let's see, where do we have? The descendants of Noah, Genesis chapter 10. So uh, you can follow it all the way through. And anyway, what happened was that these are descendants of those people that are men of renown. That's the best way I would explain it. I mean, we could do a more thorough study and, and uh, go into that. But the point is, is that when they went into the land, that's who they ran into. And that they weren't going to easily take it. But there were two guys that said... It doesn't matter what we think about what the world says, what 
is, is true about might and power. It matters what God says. So I think we should go. And that was Joshua and Caleb, right? And Caleb was of the tribe of Judah. He was eventually would reside there in that area. Because when he got to be 80 years old, so they were 40 at the time that Joshua and Caleb made this statement. They said, let's go for it. God said, let's take it. Let's go. So uh, they were 40. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And after 40 years, Caleb comes in. And when Joshua says, okay, what land do you want? Caleb says, I'm as strong at 80 as I was at 40. Give me the giants. I want them. So he comes down here and he settles this country. The other area, Joshua was from? Ephraim. Ephraim. It is. Yeah. Well, not from Benjamin, from Joseph. Sorry. So Ephraim, which is where the seat of government went because that was Joshua's tribe. So what you see is you see kind of a division to the north and the south from the very beginning. Uh, And the two guys that went into the land uh, and came back and said, let's do what God asked us to do. And what you're seeing now is that David, who is from Judah, when he wants to unite, he picks the central location between Ephraim and Judah. The area between Ephraim and Judah, if you pull out your Bible maps, this area here is exactly where they first came into the land. They came from Gilgal, and they came up this ascent here, and they uh, came up this ascent here. And I don't know if you can see it real well, but you can see there's a kind of a mountaintop there and a mountaintop there. Those are two ridge routes that lead into the land. And what they did is they came up those ridge routes, and they took the land. That's how they attacked. And then they came in, and they went north and south. Well... This area where they came up was given to the tribe of Benjamin because Benjamin was a favored son, and this was great country. It's strategically important. It's a high value for plateau area where they could build and they could grow and they could have uh, ranching and that kind of stuff. So Benjamin was given this territory, but if you look at what happened to Benjamin... Benjamin basically did something really bad. And the, all of the tribes, and this is in uh, the Judges where you read about this, where uh, I'll, I'll let you read the story rather than go into it in, in depth. But basically, Benjamin did something really bad. So all the tribes came and they were going to wipe out the Benjamites. They said, we're not going to leave one left. But then they kind of recanted on that after they had wiped them out so that they were not strong. And rather than killing every last man, um, they decided they would resettle them. So they resettled them with uh, daughters from Jabesh Gilead. And that's how Jabesh Gilead became an associate with the Benjamin uh, Benjamites. Saul was from Benjamin. So It made sense for the people, when they picked their first king, who are they going to pick? They're going to pick someone from that central, strategically uh, located tribe, Benjamin. So they picked Saul. God didn't pick Saul. The people picked Saul. Right? So I say God didn't pick Saul. Uh, When you read 
God recognized that the people were going to pick Saul, so he said, okay, uh, this is what happens when you ask for a king that's like the nations around you. So anyway, um, Saul had his throne here in Gideon, which is right in the center, or in Gibeah, excuse me, there, Gibeon and Gibeah. Uh, so he had his area here in Gibeah. I'm just just trying to make sure I got the right one. Uh, And actually, I think it's Gibeon. So anyway, so what he reigned from this area, Benjamin goes as far south as Jerusalem. If you read in Joshua, the division of the land, the division line between the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah actually comes to a southern valley, uh, a where a couple of valleys come together. And let's see if I can uh, move through here. This is a model of Jerusalem in the day of of Jesus in the first century A.D. This is a model that was built uh, years ago by archaeologists, and archaeologists, it was such a great model. used to be in the Holy Land's Hotel in Jerusalem, and it was such a great model that they actually disassembled it and moved it to a, a national museum oh. in Israel. This is and a model of what again? This is a model of Israel. Oh, okay. So, if you don't mind me... Of Jerusalem. Of Jerusalem, excuse me. Blah, blah, blah. What is, That'd be a big model. Yeah, it'd be a big model. <laughs> okay, here's my wife. I uh, want to take you out to give you a picture of the whole thing. So, this is kind of a standing back... Uh, on a mountain outside of Israel, if you looked at it, this would be looking at, or outside of Jerusalem, you'd be looking at the whole of the city at this point. What you see here is the um, fortress of Antonia and then the Temple Mount back here. The city of David's going to be down here. I'm going to show you that in a minute. This high area here is called Zion, Mount Zion today. Uh, the whole area becomes known as Zion. So when you read about Zion in the Bible, it's really referring to this whole area that was settled. But there's distinct points because there's a, a valley that runs down this side, and that's called the Kidron Valley. And you probably read about it because on the other side of the Kidron Valley, on one side is the Temple Mount. On the other side is the Mount of Olives. And so... When you read John's uh, Last Supper account, John chapter 13 through 17, what happens is is it starts out up here on Mount Zion, uh, and it's a walking trip from Mount Zion through the temple, out the east gate, over to the Garden of Gethsemane. There are geographical markers in that account that you can recognize, and You know, if we ever did a study of John, I'd point them out to you. But this is uh, Jerusalem in the first century. At the time that David was here, it didn't look obviously anything like this, right? Um, The the temple wasn't there. This is a picture of the Antonio Fortress, and uh, you'll see the Temple Mount behind it here. We'll get to that in a minute. Is that Roman? Pardon? The Antonio Fortress, who built that? Uh, That was Roman. And so the governor would be there in that fortress, and that was Pilate. And Pilate was, uh, of course, the 
the guy that tried Jesus officially for the Roman government. This is that eastern gate. Uh, this is the, the temple right here. And this whole area up here is the Temple Mount. Today, it's got uh, a couple of mosques on it. And you can actually get up there. Karen and I got up there last time we were there. It really surprised me that they would let us up there. Uh, you have to follow a lot of rules. Yeah, you have to have a passport. It's like a different country. Uh, but you can actually come up through the gate that I'll show you. But this is the Temple Mount, and this is the Eastern Gate. They would come down into this valley here, which is the Kidron Valley, and then up to the Mount of Olives. Yes? Okay, so I haven't got to Jerusalem yet. But I always thought the Mount was a, a real mountain. This is scale model. This is a scale model, right? Uh-huh. I mean, Almost looks like it's down the hole. It's like the walls are bigger than the it's like Mount Tabor. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, we have an idea of mountain that's like Mount Rainier. <laughs> and these things are going from near sea level to 14,000 feet in the case of Mount Rainier. Did you see those spots? I mean, like the mosque that you see in all the pictures now would be about where that. Exactly where the temple is. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Yes. Something that would um, play into it is that after the, uh, the the city today doesn't look much like it did at the time of David, simply because with the repeated destructions of the city, they've taken a lot of that rubble, right. and uh, like the, the, there was a valley on the west side of uh, Jerusalem, right, and it's been filled in, right, and that and there was a right. and the Kidron Valley and the Inham Valley, you know, anything you use as a dump, like the Inham Valley, right. will then fill in. Yeah, and, that, and the Hinnom Valley filled in. The Kidron is still pretty distinct, uh, but you're correct. The Central Valley, the Tyropean Valley, um, has been filled in by rubble. You wouldn't even know it's there. You're walking on a street in that valley, and you have no clue that it's actually a valley, and that that's what made it distinctive for the city of David. So there were three valleys that were significant. This Kidron Valley, the Hinnom Valley. Let me see. I'm going to try and move through here. So this is trying to portray the, uh, the steepness going down into the Kidron Valley. So it's steep on both sides. And it's steep on both sides today. Uh, and you can't go out this gate anymore. Rather, you come out over here uh, near the top of the city of David. But there is a road that comes along here and you come over to the Mount of Olives, similar to what Dave, uh, what Jesus would have done. There's a good picture for you. Uh, let's see if I can get past some of this Temple Mount stuff. Okay, so now I'm getting to the city of David. This is the city of David. So when we read here in chapter 5 of Second Samuel, read this account. Uh, now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Uh, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6, Second Samuel. Yeah, sorry, I jumped right in. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. 
David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who were hated by David's soul, through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, The blame, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So let's take a look at what that account's looking at. So here you have the Kidron Valley coming down. Over here that I, I can't quite show you is a less uh, acute valley. It's not quite as steep. It's a little bit flatter. It's the Hinnom Valley. So Jerusalem is bounded on this side by Kidron and on this side over here by the Hinnom Valley. And they meet right down here. And there's a well, a spring... In, in this area here that was behind the wall of the Jebusites. So the wall that you see here in first century Jerusalem, there was a wall similar for the city of David, but it went more like this. It went around this area right here. So this is the city of David. It's just the top of that ridge. And there's a central valley that comes down here. This is the Temple Mount up here. And you would actually go around the Temple Mount and there's part of the city up here which was developed by uh, subsequent kings. The Temple Mount, which we also read about in Samuel, at the end of Samuel, was taken by David, or paid for by David, uh, as a place to make an offering for God for stopping the plague that was coming in because of his sin. And Solomon subsequently built the Temple up here. So there were... Uh, two temples that were built. The third has not yet been constructed. The first one was Solomon's. The second one was built after Solomon's was destroyed by the Babylonians and it was rebuilt by Herod, Herod the Great, great builder. And part of that temple still stands today. That's what the Western Wall is. They call it the Wailing Wall. People will go up and they'll put their little prayers on a piece of paper and shove it in the wall. So you go to this wall and it's got all these little tubes of paper on it. Um, but that was very significant when the Jews retook the land in 1948. Uh, they, or they actually took it in 1949 in that part of the country. When they came into Jerusalem and they actually took that, uh, took control of that area, which we call the Western Wall, that was very significant. The whole war stopped for a moment while they stopped and worshipped at the temple because that was very significant for them, because after the Romans destroyed this temple, they took in 70 AD and smashed it to the <coughs> No stone upon another, is what Jesus said would happen. And you can actually see where they took these heavy stones from the top of this wall. These are, you know, 40 tons and more uh, that they actually dislodged into the roadway down below. And you can actually see where they hit and crushed the roadway. So... At that point, when the, the Israelis retook this area, they stopped and they said, this is our most significant site, and that's what we're reading here in the Bible. Yes? Okay, so you're touching on an area where I always have a question. Uh -huh. So, say that one more time about the Wailing Wall, because I always thought there was no stone left on another one. It's like, well, <laughs> okay, so let me, uh, okay, I, I'm going to come back to this picture because this is a really good picture of the city of David because you kind of see the three valleys. 
You see that there is, even though it's very indistinct here, there's actually a valley coming down here, a valley coming here, and a valley coming across here. And that's what David's going to take. He's going to take it through the waterway, which is right here. Um, let me go back to the temple. And now I have other pictures of the temple, too. Okay, so here's the temple. So your question was the Wailing Wall. This is the eastern wall of the temple. So that's why it's called the Eastern Gate. Sometimes it's called the Golden Gate. Um, it's also called the Beautiful Gate. So when you read in Acts about uh, Peter and John walking through the Beautiful Gate, this is how they were entering the Temple Mount area. And this Temple Mount area, as long as you were a Jew, was an area that you could enter. Gentiles were excluded from this, generally. And if there were uh, Gentile proselytes, they had a special court that they could enter, but they were never allowed access to the inner part of this courtyard. Question back here? No. No? Okay. Uh, so this is the, the eastern wall. On the other side over here is the western wall. And when I get, I'm, I'm actually walking around this model, and I'll show you the western wall at one point. That area, what happened was all of this wall that was around the Temple Mount, when the Romans came in and they crushed it, they basically took all these stones and they pushed them off. When they pushed them off, they actually covered uh, the western wall to a degree. So there was a bunch of debris in there. And they had to clear out that debris. And you can still see remnants of what was in that area uh, that's been removed. I mean, they've taken out some of these stones because this is an area that's ancient, so they reuse materials. Since it's built out of the Cenomanian limestone, they reuse that Cenomanian limestone as much as they can. And Herod the Great, being a great builder, had huge chunks that were shaped in, in uh, you know, rectangles and things like that that could be used in buildings. So a lot of that material was carried off for subsequent building. And when that happened, it exposed some of the, the lower areas. So the western wall, when they got there, it's like, there's the western wall. And the, the Turks had rebuilt part of that. So there was a... So the Wailing Wall is the western wall, the western. Below, almost below the like footage. It actually goes, if you can get into this area today, and you can do tours underneath the Temple Mount. Uh, they're not common tours. You have to have special access. But as a Westerner, you can get in there. It actually goes below the Western Wall into the uh, storage chambers and other areas beneath the Temple Mount. So here's the Temple Mount. Underneath that is a whole bunch of uh, storage and rooms and stables and other things. Yeah, Herod, uh, because he was into building and because he had more money than anybody but Caesar, uh, literally, yeah. he was the yeah. he had a whole Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah, he was a, he was very. That's he why he owned vineyards and fields and flocks and the whole bit. But the the what we call the Temple Mount, where you see this big platform. That is something Herod built. He added up to it. So the, the western wall is the thing that it's like a retaining wall. It was meant to help support this huge platform that the temple sat on. 
when the Romans destroyed the temple, yeah, no stone was left on itself from the from the temple buildings, the porticos, and all that stuff that you read about in the New Testament. All of that was leveled off, right? But the platform remained, mm-hmm. right? And the support structures. I mean, Herod Herod was uh, he could actually move mountains, and he did. Yeah. There were areas where he wanted one mountain to be taller than another. So he had workers actually remove the top of one mountain and move it over to another mountain. Yeah, he was an incredible builder. He had really good engineers. When he, uh, his engineers perfected a form of concrete uh, for, for uh, sea foundations, like at Caesarea, that stand to this day. You can still see the foundations of structures that he built at uh, Caesarea on the sea. Concrete is like better than ours. Yes, and not only that, but it was built in place. It was built in place. I mean, they understood chemistry. They understood engineering. Built in place, and it actually formed as part of the, using the seawater as part of the chemical equation to make this concrete that persists to this day. Incredibly durable. So these are smart guys. We think we're smart. Do we have any idea of the technology they used at that time? I mean, the picture in our mind is horses and donkeys and and wooden wheels and, uh, you know, to move a 40-ton stone and precisely place it, there had to be some some technology much more advanced than that that isn't even mentioned by our modern-day people. I mean, there's, there's... they had reached levels that we have no imagination of. Well, and you can see some of the stones. They're still still there, 2,000 years later, placed. And we have uh, no idea how they were doing that. Um, well, we know that it was done with uh, human power. Well, I know, but they had to have leverage. Well, of course they used leverage very creatively. I mean, they had to have they something else. They understood leverage very well. Um, I mean, like I say, he was an incredible builder, and, you know, we would say, well, they must have had alien help. (laughs) Because they couldn't do it. You know, they didn't have our cranes. They didn't have our, you know, uh, the most powerful engine that we know of is the human body. You eat a little bit of plant material and you can lift stones. You can chop down trees. It's incredible the amount of power that God built within the human body. If you do the, the math equations for you know how, how many BTUs we can generate, we're incredibly powerful, wonderfully made. Yes, yeah, but you're still not going to lift a 40-ton stone. <laughs> not by myself. <laughs> but not only did God give us community, but he also gave us brains. And that's one of the things I want to point out as I go through this stuff is, you know, we they did incredible things. Oh, yeah. Not much has changed between the time that Adam fell in the garden and today. Not much has changed in the human heart. Not much has changed in the human mission. Right? We think that things are radically different today and that we're constantly getting better. This is a modern idea that there's a continual improvement in humanity. That is an absolute falsehood, and the Bible tells us so. And so, 
when we see these things, it reinforces that no, God really is sovereign. What he created was built to last. And what happened was a fundamental corruption of his creation. And he's not just going to repair it, he's going to remake it. And that's what we're seeing, the seeds of that are being put down right now as we uncover this in the scripture. And it's phenomenal that David would, they would go from David, from the time of David to this temple was a thousand years. Right? So, uh, that's a good picture. Let me go back there. Okay, so here is, uh, as you come out uh, on the southern gate of the Temple Mount. Now, this is the Temple Mount today. So the temple's up here. Uh, you know, they have, you talked about all the porticos and all of the other functions. This was a major social area <clears throat> where people would interact. And if you were a business owner, you wanted space on the Temple Mount, right? Because you could sell your goods. That's where everybody comes. This is, and you know, there are certain requirements just to get up there. And so you've got qualified customers that are walking up the door. And this was uh, an area that gives you access underneath the Temple Mount area on the southern side. And there was, there was an area here where people would go through their ritual bathing in order to prepare themselves. And they would come around and enter over here. There's another arch over here. You can kind of see it a little bit. And then there's another uh, stairway that comes up to the Temple Mount. But they would do their ritual bathing here, and they would. this would be an area of teaching. So some of the areas that we read about Jesus' teaching in Jerusalem would have been here at the temple, right? This is a teaching area, a staging area. It's right at the head of the city of David. So the city of David starts right here and goes down this, this slope. And it's at the time that David was here, and he goes against the, the Jebusites, they had this completely uh, walled off and fortified to the point where they said, you, there's no way that you can take this. We have a spring that is within the wall, so we have water. We have food supplies to last us. And we've got fortification that makes this impenetrable. Even our lame and our blind can defend this location. So... David knew the plan of God, right? That's what we read here. David knew the plan of God, and that the plan of God was to have this country, um, his people's country. When I say his people, we're all his people, but there were a, there were a specific group of people that were descendants of Jacob that were intended to represent God to the world. They are intended to represent him in as God being king, reigning from his city on earth, which would become Jerusalem, and that they would uh, interact with all of the nations. So the other 11 tribes had the same job as the, the tribe in the temple, which was to represent God in the world. And that's, God said, this is the area that I want you to inhabit, which is this little intersection point on the map. It isn't anything. When you look at Egypt, you look at Assyria, you look at Babylon, you look at the other nations in the world at that point in time, a little tiny dot is a crossroads, and that's Israel. And in that crossroads, God said, this is where I'm going to uh, put my foot on the ground, 
in the world where the bridge between heaven and earth will be accomplished, will be the end points on the bridge, and that out from here the whole world will be blessed. Right? That's what's going on. David comes up there, he says, I know the plan of God. God says, this is our country. So you can't tell me that lame and blind can defend this against God. And that's what David does. He says, you know what? Water is the key. This is an arid land. We know that water is key. If you're, gonna, if you're a strategic thinker, what you do is you say, I'm going to attack the water. But David does more than that. He says, rather than cut off the water and cause them to have to exit the place in order to find water, I'm going to use that water and I'm going to come up the water chute. And we have other pictures, which I can show you, that there was an actual Canaanite tunnel that went down to this spring. And it was within this walled area. Hezekiah then took that and fortified that and made another tunnel. But there were actually two accesses to this spring. There's the old Canaanite tunnel, and then there's Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, which was built at a later time. David used that as an access point to come up and take this city. And when he took it, he took the highest point of land up here. So they came in underwater, or did they uh, have to shut up? Well, it's, it's kind of like this. Uh, a spring is uh, a place in uh, geology where you have water moves along underground this, like it does up, above ground. you got streams. And it's moving along strata in uh, uh, geographical or geological uh, topology. And what happens is, is where it's moving, where that uh, comes into contact with the surface, you get a spring. And so one of those, and this is interesting because this is it. Uh, so I gave you that how many meters it is. Is it 1,700 meters? Uh, no, 700 meters, excuse me, 800 meters in the hill surrounding this. So 800 meters times three, you're looking at about 2,500 feet. So at 2,500 feet in this arid land, the geology causes a, a rise and the, the water comes out. And so they, you got this pool of water and then everybody comes downhill and gets the water, fills up their bucket and go back to their house. So they didn't have indoor plumbing at that time, uh, although they were pretty creative. So Herod actually came up with indoor plumbing. But they would, uh, what they would do is they would have this tunnel that went down to the spring so that it was inside the wall. And they just used the natural breaks in the rock and figured out, okay, this is exactly how we're going to do it. What's even a greater engineering feat is that Hezekiah's tunnel is, uh, I, I'd have to look up the exact distance of it, but it's very long, you know. And they actually started at both ends and met in the middle. Yeah. And you can go there today, and it's actually chiseled on the wall where the two sides met. And uh, I mean, we're talking within inches, yeah. right? And this is under tons and tons and tons and tons of rock. And they actually did it. So, you know, we think we're smart. <laughs> David was smart. He took the ship. Canaanite tunnel was dry, so it's not yeah. like walking through water. Well, in Hezekiah's tunnel, yeah, Hezekiah's tunnel, when you walk through it, um, so the Canaanite tunnel, people would actually go down to the spring. When Hezekiah built his tunnel, he actually brought it to a pool down here. So he went down to the spring, and his tunnel uh, dropped down to this pool. So this, this pool here, that you see is a pool of Siloam. 
And what that is is they, that's through Hezekiah's tunnel, it channeled the water down so that the people didn't have to uh, go through the Canaanite tunnel and walk down with their buckets. They could just walk downhill to this pool. Um, but that wasn't there in the time of David, right? And if you look at that, that would have been outside the Jebusite city because it's kind of on the lower part of the Central Valley. So it would have been exposed. That's why they built this wall around the southern part of Jerusalem in Jesus' time, was to protect things like this, protect the water supply. And David was actually able to cut that supply off so they couldn't he, get it? He didn't cut it off. What he did is he basically got access to the spring from outside here and then used that Canaanite tunnel to come up inside the city. So he came up from from the inside, rather than trying to attack the wall, he came up through the canyon. So there was access to that from the outside somewhere. Uh, if you know where it is. So who would know where water is in the desert? <coughs> Pardon? A shepherd would know, right? Just like Moses was a, a shepherd, a Bedouin tribal person, right? So he knew how to find water in the desert. And one of the tricks is they can look at the geology and where water comes close to the surface, it forms crystal formation that is very distinct if you know what you're looking for. To me, it looks like dirt. <laughs> but to the eye, it looks like water. And this is why God got mad at Moses when the people were in the desert and they were crying for water and Moses said, oh, you want water? I'll give you water. And he goes over and he takes his staff and he smacks the rock, right? What he was doing was breaking up the crystal formation such that the water could seep through. Well, so that was like a reflex for him. He it was a reflex for him. It was a, but he'd been it was told a Bedouin trick. Huh? It was a Bedouin trick. He knew how to get water out of the rock. But, he'd been but what God did, what God did is he said... You may use your trick, but I'm not going to cause a little trickle coming out of the rock. I'm going to give you water gushing out. And so water came gushing out of the rock. And then he said, Moses, what did I tell you? Right? Told you to trust me. Yeah. And you did. You used your own knowledge, your own tricks. And so God doesn't like people going against his explicit instructions. And so that's what you're seeing here, is that David... At this point in his kingship, he's at his absolute peak. He has gone through God's character university. Um, he knows uh, the mind of God, the heart of God for his people, what his part of God's mission is, that he's there to provide, to protect, and to serve. And that's what we're going to see is happening next. And I know I said this last week, but we're going to see that there's war with the Philistines. And David uh, goes in... And the Philistines also understand the topology really well of the land. So if they're uh, under Saul's reign, they weren't too concerned because they could basically have their way with the countryside. Let's see if this thing will go back out. Maybe it won't. Come on. It's now stuck in a disputy loop. There we go. Okay. So what you see is you see this area called the Valley of Rephaim. That's uh, if the, the Philistines came from the coastal plain 
and they basically came up these valleys, which are very rugged, and I can show you pictures of those too, and they came up into this valley here to cut David off from the south and the north. So the Philistines put this wedge in trying to separate the people after David had united them. And we read about that in chapter 5, verses 17 uh, through 25. And I'll give you the summary statement there. Because David, when he was confronted with this, just like when he was confronted with, how do I establish a unified nation now that we've established this covenant? How do I actually make that a territorial uh, nation, a territorial state? Um, He was moving the seat of government to Jerusalem, and the Philistines said, let's stop this right now. So they try and uh, divide it right here. But David, in the whole of his kingship at this point in time, is saying, what does God want me to do? God can take care of these Philistines. What does God want me to do? And he actually asked God, should I go against these guys? And God says, yes. And so he defeats them here in the Valley of Ephraim. And the Philistines come in again. They try the same tactic. Let's divide them again. And they come in and they try and and basically take this whole plateau again of Benjamin. And David says, what should I do? And God says, I want you to circle around behind them. And I want you, when you hear the sound of uh, voices in the balsam trees, right? When you hear the the sound of the wind, I want you to quickly muster your forces and go in because that means that I'm there and I'm going ahead of you. And he's telling David exactly what to do. David's not going out in front. He's following the, the true king into battle. And he comes in and he defeats him twice. And when he does that, he actually unifies this whole territory. And that's what you read about in chapter 5. And it's, it ends, chapter 5 says, Then David did so, taking uh, war against the Philistines, just as the Lord had commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So Geba is on this edge of the Benjamin Plateau, and this is about as far as you can get before you start going down these ascents, down to the Jordan Valley. And he, he basically routed them all the way across. That's what David did. He pushed the Philistines all the way out. So he was being obedient to God's command as king. This is the highlight of David's career as king. He's obedient. He's listening to what God says. Um, He cares about the people. But he also makes some of the greatest uh, mistakes of his life, too. The, the next thing he does, if you look at chapter 6, and I'm going to over just a minute here. If you look at chapter 6, once you've secured the territory, it's now safe to have the king come in and occupy the throne. So what does he do? He moves the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, from where it had been stored, because you remember... The Ark of the Covenant was in Shiloh. They lost it to the Philistines. When they got it back, nobody wanted to touch it. So they left it in this Kiriath Jerim city here. And David went and got it and brought it to Jerusalem. He said, this is the center of God's governance on earth. 
And it was explicitly to set up God's throne, not his throne. So you see David doing these incredible actions of leadership. The mistake he made had to do with wives. <laughs> because that was, that was an explicit violation of Deuteronomy 17. Of what the king is supposed to do. So David made mistakes. And it's going to cost him dearly. So I'll leave with this uh, preface to chapter 7 because we, we're going to get into the mistake David made and then the covenant next week. I knew I wouldn't get there this week. It says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. That's the summary statement of chapter 5, chapter 6. Do all that is in your mind, the Lord is with you. Because David had, uh, through the character university and through his obedience, had become a man after God's heart. He had God's mind. Let's go ahead and close in prayer here. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we've had to get together today and study your word and um, actually look and in some way participate in this part of the world, which is so small but so uh, central to your plan and your purpose, a plan of redemption, that you've made a promise to us, a covenant um, that you will never break and that your plan is a plan to save us and to redeem us. And that we wouldn't just be passive citizens of your kingdom, but we would be active citizens of your kingdom. Lord, I would ask that blessing upon us this morning. Enable us to truly be active citizens of your kingdom. Help us to um, be a blessing to those around us, to serve those around us, to protect those around us, and to provide as you provided for us. Lord, help us to to be the, the arms and feet in your mission. Lord, I lift you this morning the service that's uh, to follow here Lord it's uh, mission focus and how we uh, move within the world I ask the blessing upon the speaker this morning Lord I ask for your blessing upon us that you would protect us as we go from here that we would have opportunity to return if you don't return first to study your covenant which is so vital to us and so important in our lives Lord I thank you for all of this in your name we pray Amen